0: This episode comes with a language warning. There's a few F-bombs, but they're all in the context of rock and roll, so there's not too much to worry about.
1: The year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories.
0: Hey there. This is Josh Ashton and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on the legendary band Daddy Cool. Daddy
2: Cool. Daddy Cool. Daddy Cool. Daddy Cool. Daddy Cool.
0: Daddy Cool. Daddy Cool. Daddy Cool. Daddy Cool. Daddy Cool. Our special guest is Daddy Cool frontman Ross Wilson. He is the songwriter of one of the finest rock songs ever created by an Australian Eagle Rock. I'm probably sounding a bit like Dr. Phil here, but when it comes to inspiring kids and helping them to fulfill their dreams, the old saying goes, if they can see it, then they can be it. A 10-year-old Ross Wilson stood beside his father, soaking up the rock and roll frenzy that was going on around them at the Lee Gordon Big Show at Melbourne's Festival Hall in 1958. As he absorbed the beautiful mayhem taking place before him, coming from the likes of no less than Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly and Johnny O'Keefe, Little did he know that one day he'd go on to create his own place in Australian music history.
3: It was pretty incredible because, like, I was, a, I was used to listen to radio all the time and I loved uh, the local pop stuff, you know, I loved all the rock and roll I heard and I gravitated towards the more wild things. So to hear, you see Jerry Lee Lewis and Buddy Holly in the Crickets and JOK trying to blow them off stage beforehand uh, live, it was really exciting, you know, because all the kids were going nuts, all the, what they call, bodgies and widgeys back then, you know. And, um, and it was pretty wild. It was, it was a great thing. And so I used to fantasise. I said, gee, maybe one day oh, I might get on that stage sometime. And then it was only about six years later, I was 16 years old and in my first band and we went in the Battle of the Bands, Fink Fink standing on that same stage. And it was like, wow. You know? And then another six years went by and I was on the headlining with Daddy Cool.
0: <laughs> it was pretty wild. After meeting as teenagers, the two Rosses, Ross Henneford and Ross Wilson, joined forces to form the Melbourne band The Pink Thinks. The band gained some success when they released a version of Louie Louie. The single reached number 16 on the local Melbourne charts in June 1965.
3: Maybe wrote one song or something while I was in the Pink Fix and then we didn't write any songs. We just did covers, you know, and, uh, and we were kind of wild and everything. And then a couple of the guys, school, they were in the last, we were in high school, and we finished year twelve, and a couple of them went off to uni. So the band started to change, and um, we became the Party Machine. Now, in the painting machine, we started to write all our own songs. We would play a few covers, but we were writing all the time. Specifically, I was writing all the time. I wrote some of them with, with Ross Hanover, but we had a piano at home, my mother's piano. I'd sit down and scope out chords and write songs, Then I, you know, or on a little guitar I had, and, um, and I came up with some pretty good stuff straight away, but it was like we were just writing all the time.
0: Ross received a telephone call from the UK, asking him if he wanted to join the band Procession. He was soon on his way.
3: Yeah, the Party Machine lasted a couple of years, sort of 67 through 69, and uh, we had Mike Rudd on bass in the, in the band, Mike Rudd, from, who went on to form Spectrum. myself and Ross Hannaford and a, a drummer called Peter Curtin. I, and I, we went through a few things where we turned professional but then we got ripped off all over the place. People sold our equipment. We didn't get paid. And so it was it was that, you know, a, a bad a bad time was going on and we came back from a tour with our tail between our legs. And then I got a call out of the blue from uh, Group Procession who had been Normie Rowe's backing band. So half of them were from England that he'd met over there and half from New Zealand. And... They'd been in Australia. They'd had a couple of hits. They went off to England. They had English management, and then I think their drummer left or something. And they decided that rather than have the guitarist just sing all the songs, he was pretty good, um, Mick Rogers, great guitarist and a really good singer. But they decided they wanted a front man, or some of them did. And they gave me a call because they'd seen me playing around and they knew I could write songs. And and so I got got this call, and I went. They said, Do "You want to come over?" And I said, "Well, nothing much happening here at the moment. Yeah, I'll come." So <laughs> off I went.
0: While in England with Procession, Ross found the inspiration to write Eagle Rock.
3: And while I was there, I bought a guitar uh, and I start, I was starting to have a lot of interest in songs I'd enjoyed when I was a kid. You know, I was getting on this whole, and it's a typical thing with, with band members, you know, you might get the Hoodoo Gurus or do something that they liked when they were a kid or something, you know, or somebody else. Everyone does it. So um and I was going, Oh, I really like this old rock and roll and I love doo wop music and I love this and that and so I was mucking around and I was and I loved Mississippi blues, you know, finger old thirties blues with finger picking guys and, and all that. And I was trying to write something like that. I was trying to go, how do they do that? you know, not not realising that they tune the guitar differently and all of that, you know. But there I was trying to play like a Mississippi blues man and I came up with this my thumb going, dum doom doom and the top finger's going, dum da dum da 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 It all based around an A chord. I'm going, gee, that's not bad. <laughs> and I went to Nick Rogers from The Possessor. I said, have you, because he was like our rock and roll too, and I said, have you heard this before? And he went, no, nah, no, nah, that's pretty good. <laughs> so I went, oh, it must be mine. You know, so I was playing and playing it, and um, I saw a, a clipping in the Sunday Times, or it was a, a series about music, and it was from Ada's Dead music series over a series of weeks you know dictionary of music and so the first week has got blues they go blues is started in the south of america and blah 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 you know and there, but there was this photo and i'm quoting it i'm not you know don't like to say the word negro but the quote said some negroes cut the pigeon wing and do the eagle rock and they had a picture of these black people in a juke joint somewhere with their arms in the air and and I went, wow, that's great. I, I think I'll call this song Eagle Rock. You know, we'll do the Eagle Rock. And that's how it all came about. And, but I didn't write the chorus till I got back to Melbourne quite a few months later.
0: Another of the early bands that the two Rosses were in was called the Sons of the Vegetal Mother.
3: Sons of the Vegetal Mother, we sang all these, these heavy kind of progressive rock songs about food. It was all about, like, you know, being healthy and stuff. So the whole thing was we all get our food from the veg- vegetable kingdom and there was this quote in the book that said, we're all sons of the Vegetal Mother, that's our mother, you know, like without the Vegetable Kingdom we wouldn't be alive. And I went, gee, that's interesting, so I called the band that. But it's funny because we go from sons and mothers to daddy, so we had the whole family in there, you know.
0: (laughs) The other two members of Daddy Cool were bass player Wayne Duncan and drummer Gary Young. They had teamed up with Wilson and Henneford in Sons of the Vegetal Mother. However, prior to being in this band, Duncan and Young had found considerable success as members of the Rondells, who were best known as the backing band for chart toppers Bobby and Laurie. Also backed up one of the leading female stars in Australia at the time, Lynne Randell. Even before they had recorded, Daddy Cool were already making a name for themselves through their live shows. The band were pulling bumper crowds around Melbourne, and it wasn't long before they had gained interest from the record companies.
3: Well, we were pretty hot around... Uh, Melbourne and we you know, we, we sold out the Melbourne Town Hall second time we played there, and we hadn't even released a record. So that's how hot we were, you know. And John McDonald, who I knew, he ran the disc shop, and I used to buy all my import records there, and he always kept and was going around and he'd started a label called Spar Mac. It was Ken Sparks, Spar and Mac John McDonald, Spar Mac. But Ken Sparks, a DJ, he wouldn't get out of that. He sold his share to Robbie Porter, who used to be Rob E.G., the lap steel player, you know, had a lot of hits as a team. He'd been off to America and he came back and he wanted to get a few things happening. And, and so McDonald said, you've got to come see this band. So they come along to Melbourne Town Hall, that sold out one, people going nuts, congering out into the street, back in around, you know, Swanson Street, back into the building. Like It was it was insane. So he's going, I love these guys. So. They made a pitch, and we decided to sign to them because we didn't want to sign with a uh, with a major label because I didn't like the way the major labels kind of worked. You know, everything was like set in stone, and you couldn't stay do anything, and they had too much control on that. And they said, "We'll go in and record an album." So we went in. We actually had been, you know, playing Eagle Rock and getting a great reaction live. So we concentrated on that track and um, and spent. You know, we did like four takes, whereas the other songs we did one or two takes. And we recorded the whole album in two and a half days, which is fast. That's all the vocals, everything. And he took it off to to L.A. because he was uh, Robbie Porter took it to L.A. where he lived half the time and got a, a really good guy to mix it, who I believe his name is John Golden, who's still around somewhere. And he he mixed it in a way that was not typical of Australian sound at the time. For instance... You listen to the records back then, there's lots and lots of reverb. He hardly used any reverb at all. It was more of like an approach that Vander and Young took with ACDC. We've got the guitars, hard right and left, and you hear them as they are, you know, grinding away. And uh, that's what we achieved with, he helped us achieve with Eagle Rock. You know, we had the right guys in the studio uh, laying it down, but he, uh, the, the the guy who mixed it and Robbie Porter producing it, uh, made it really come to life, you know. We learn a lot from that. Like Robbie Porter came in and said, okay, let's try some hand claps because there's his hand claps on the track. And we go, oh, okay. And he goes, now when I go, I forget how he did it, but when I blink twice, you go, and when I'm just normally, you just go, but when I do this other single, you go. So he had this whole thing in his head and it sounds really great. So as a producer, you know, he's quite musical and he could play the piano. There's a bit of piano on things he played and, and it all worked out great.
0: In 1965, English migrant Roger Savage had arrived in Australia. He was a sound engineer who had worked with many bands back in the UK. The most notable of these was the Rolling Stones. Thankfully for the Aussie music industry, he made his way to the Armstrong Studios in Albert Street, South Melbourne. Together with the owner of the studio, Bill Armstrong, they would help to craft and then capture the sounds of a generation. The Easy Beats classic, She's So Fine, was their first big success. Then followed the Masters Apprentices, the Twilights, Russell Morris, Brian Cadd, the Aztecs, John Farnham and the Little River Band to name just a few. One of Armstrong Studios' biggest success stories was Daddy Cool.
3: So we record that at Armstrong's and they had uh, Roger Savage, who was, had come from England he'd re- recorded early Stones records and a few other things and he had a whole new approach and they were churning out hits all over the place from you know all the Melbourne bands and all coming from this pretty much this one studio in a converted terrace house in Albert Park. And I'd been in there doing demos and things before and we recorded a Party Machine single there. So I was familiar with the the studio. What they did there, they only had like eight tracks at the time so there was a lot of bouncing down but they had the bass drum and the bass on one track. So you get this very, because bass is not... It doesn't matter about stereo with bass. Bass is non-directional. So you, you have that in the middle and, and then you put the other things out to the sides. So but the bass, having the bass and the bass drum on the one track, that, and they were so good at recording it like that, it, you could do things really quickly and they'd sound great, you know. So, like, there was whole other um, things brought in, into the country with guys like Roger Savage.
0: As their debut single, Daddy Cool releases Eagle Rock on the Sparmac label in May 1971 and it rockets straight to number one. Eagle Rock locks itself into the number one position and stays in the top spot on the national charts for 10 weeks. This was a record at the time. Previously, no other artist or band had ever reached double figures staying at number one, not Elvis or even the Beatles. Daddy Cool were now the most popular act in Australia. In Melbourne, they were hometown heroes, with a song staying in the number one position for an incredible 17 weeks. All of a sudden, Ross Wilson was a rock star.
3: It was also a bit overwhelming. You know, I had never experienced that before. Gary and Wayne had sort of been pop stars with Bobby and Laurie and a few other things, but for me it was the first time. You know, I just played, you know, dances and stuff and got better as we went along, but I'd never experienced that spotlight before. I had never had any real fame, so it was quite overwhelming. You know, it did affect me, you know.
0: A tradition has somehow developed of the eagle drop. This is where punters drop their dacks as the first notes of eagle rock rings out. And the pants stay down around the ankles for the entire song. In some universities and sporting clubs, doing the eagle drop is compulsory, and failure to unbuckle the belt would see the offender having to shout the bar.
3: You know, the Aussies have, Aussies have got a good sense of humour. You know, they came up with "No way, get fuck fuck like off" for the Angels, and then they've come up with the eagle drop for <laughs> for Eagle Rock. <laughs> you know, we played at the University of Queensland a couple of years ago. They were going for the world record because they reckon they started it. There was all these guys there. we played Eagle Rock, they just went nuts. Everyone's dropping their decks and jumping on stage and it was, it was amazing.
0: Elton John and his songwriting partner, Bernie Taupman, are unabashed fans of Daddy Cool and they both acknowledge the band's influence. Eagle Rock has been credited by Elton as inspiration for him to write one of his biggest hits, Crocodile Rock.
3: It was Elton John that, see, we were on our way back from the States with Daddy Cool and the promoter said, I've just been over in in, uh, touring Elton John in Australia and all he wants to do is talk about Daddy Cool. He loves Eagle Rock and Come Back Again. We said, oh, wow, that's pretty interesting because we, I mean, I kind of knew who he was. He'd had like one hit or something by that time, but he was kind of like grey suits and and orchestras and all that kind of stuff. Here's Daddy Cool. Suddenly he's wearing flamboyant clothes and riding Crocodile Rock, you know. (laughs) So, and he, it's interesting, he's been on tour, you know, on this tour he was on before he got shut down by the virus um, and he's been acknowledging that on stage. He's going, like, the reason I love Australia is because in 1971, you know, he, he says Ross Wilson, Daddy Cool. That's why I kept coming back, you know. He says it on stage. So, like, and then somewhere else somebody said he acknowledged on stage, you know, that we was we kind of knew anyway but we didn't have verbal confirmation that eagle rock inspired crocodile rock you know it's about an old dance and do wopie stuff and all of that kind of junk so um to have that kind of influence on people is uh quite exciting you know because i i think about people who influence me and i said well why shouldn't i influence other people
0: <laughs> music is now a big part of sports entertainment and there's nothing like a great tune to get the stadium rocking Two of Australia's higher profile sporting teams, the West Coast Eagles in the AFL and the Manly Sea Eagles in the NRL, both for obvious reasons, have adopted Eagle Rock as their team song.
3: It's not their real theme song, you know, it's their it's their second song, but they play it more than their theme's real theme songs, because their real theme songs are so freaking boring, you know? So but they all like if they kick a goal, it's like someone turns on the switch and it's do oh, ah, and the Eagle Rock. So at one stage, you know what APRA is, Australian Performing Rights Association, I went to them and I said, listen, every time they do this and play Eagle, they think they own the song and they don't own the song. It's my song, you know, and you've got Performing Rights Association, don't they have to pay fees for that? And they said, yes, they do. So they had a blanket kind of fee but because they were like doing it all the time, they upped my payments on that so I was was much more happier then.
0: (laughs) In the early 1970s, the world was nowhere near as connected as it is today. Eagle Rock was released in the United States, and the song had great success in some parts of America. In some states, the single went number one. Unfortunately for the band, they were the last people to know. Eagle Rock was having the same effect on Americans as it had done back home in Australia. It was only when Daddy Cool toured the USA they got to find out how popular they actually were. Well, it did, but
3: unfortunately, you know, I gave I gave Robbie Porter a good rap before as a producer, but he had a his pal over there in management was uh, this guy Steve Bindham. And so they got us a deal with um, Reprise Records who went out and promoted it uh, for like a month or so and it was doing quite well and we went over and played but we were never able to get any figures out of them about or, or any real intelligence about where it was happening or not happening. And apparently it went like number one in Houston and a few other places, you know, but I didn't know that and they weren't telling us. For some reason they weren't telling us about it. So we'd go and play Places like we turned up in this place called Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we were like number one. You know, we had a gig there. We'd played there a few months before. When we came back, we were stars. They said uh, the news people sent out cameras to to the TV station, and and we played it. Was a college town. We played in this big auditorium. And the second time we played there, we were you know we had the number one album and everything in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we were playing with the, the Fleetwood Mac of the time, and and we were like supporting them on the bill, but we were the stars. You know, we blew the blew the roof down to five thousand people. You know, so like that's the thing with with America is such a big place, such a big marketplace. You yeah, you had to tour relentlessly if you were going to really keep chipping away in it. And we it turned out we didn't have the stamina or the willpower to do that, partly because we we fell out of love with uh, Binder and Porter, and so. Um, You know, we did release the two albums over there. Uh, We did several tours and um, we were making headway but we kind of took, we lost the wind in our sails so we kind of came back and, you know, I was going, oh, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. So,
0: Apart from fantastic music, one thing that Daddy Cool were known for was having a great time when on stage. They didn't mind dressing up and from time to time Ross could be found sporting fox ears and a tail.
3: Well, we... See, we were, we were, we we're a funny band. We we saw we had the foxtail and the, the things. Uh, Hannaford, we had all these art student friends, some on my side of the family, some on his friends, and all of that. They would make us stuff, you know. They loved to come and see the band. They, they made the ears for me. They, you know, and someone gave me a foxtail because they said, with your beard and your pointy nose, you look a bit like a fox. So, like, I go, okay. So, stick that on. Hannaford would always making up crazy clothes like he made it. A suit one time, he painted it like it was made of bricks, you know. (laughs) He'd do all crazy shit like that. So one of the funny things was when we went to the States for the first time, you know, Binder Porter had, or Steve Binder had this idea in his head that that's what we wore all the time. So we go and play the Whiskey A Go-Go. He comes up and gives us his rave before we go on. He goes, where's your beanie? Where's your foxtail? I'm going, well... I don't wear it all the time. He goes, "You got to wear it." I said, "Well, I've got to wear it." You know, he bummed us out completely before we went on for our biggest gig, the auditioning for the radio, record companies. You know, we're going. Like, oh, sorry, man. You know, <laughs> we had other things we were wearing by then. You know, <laughs> crazy, no, crazy time.
0: When Ross came across the photo of the dancers doing the Eagle Rock, he didn't know it at the time. However the dance craze of the Eagle Rock had been a big hit in the black dance halls in America in the early 1900s. The dance even gets a mention in a song released in 1913 called Ball and the Jack
2: then you do the evil rock with style and race, swing your foot way around and bring it back now that's what i call golden
0: jack the b side to eagle rock was a song written by the two rosses called bomb bum and it highlights the band's love of do up The continued success of Eagle Rock has been phenomenal. It became the highest selling song in Australia in 1971 and it also reached number one in New Zealand. The group was inducted into the Aria Hall of Fame and in 2001 APRA released a list of the most successful songs in Australian music history. Eagle Rock came in at number two, only behind Friday on My Mind by the Easy Beats. The song is a true Aussie classic and as the lyrics say when Ross wrote them down all those years ago, the good old Eagle Rock is here to stay. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's Eagle Rock by Daddy Cool.
2: round once and we'll do the eagle run
0: listening to awesome aussie songs thanks to ross for your time and thanks to daddy cool for the music
1: hi this is molly you've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Mycos promotions written and produced by my dad sheldon the kangaroo kip and presented by josh urson this is molly kid saying to my good friend holly kirsten hit it girl I've got something to tell you About a place that I've been to And now, now I know